If you would open your Bible to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're going to knock out, it's a shorter chapter, but it, I was going to do half and it didn't seem appropriate because the last half really packs the punch of the first half. So let's read together Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 26. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, and though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that, may he, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have has spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed, as we read earlier. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the miraculous healing that takes place in this passage and how we see, even from this miraculous healing, that you not only heal bodies, but you heal our souls. God, we are crippled by our sin. We are destitute. We are beggars. And we come before you recognizing our sin, but also recognizing the healing power of Jesus Christ. Pray that you transform our hearts, cleanse us, that we might enter your presence. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Right now, there are, according to Google, 7.125 billion people alive. Think about that for a second. 
The sun is 109 times larger than the earth. So if the earth was the size of a ping pong ball, about one inch, the sun would be nine feet in diameter. And that is one of the smallest stars in the universe. And the distance between the earth as a ping pong ball and the sun as a nine foot ball would be about three football fields away. It's pretty far away. It's a long distance. The observable universe is 91 billion light years wide, so it would take 91 billion years to cross it if you were going at the speed of light. You are not important. I am not important. We are but a speck in the span of history and in this massive universe. We are but a... I am not important. And yet the creator of the world, the creator of this massive universe, came to this earth to save a bunch of selfish liars, cheaters, murderers, adulterers, convinced the universe is all about them. I walk around every single day convinced that this world, this life, is all about me. And that's how I guide my decisions. But in reality, not only are we small and seemingly insignificant, but we're broken. And we're pretty helpless. And yet, because our sin incapacitates us, because we are broken, we should turn to Christ for restoration. Because even as we sang, sang just even God cares for the sparrow. And Christ said that's the promise that He cares for us. He cares for the lilies of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. And He cares for us. We're called to cling to that promise. Even though this universe is much bigger than we are, even though there are so many people, God somehow is big enough that He can care and He does care for us. Remember the context of this? Christ has ascended, and this is sort of a picture of what life looked like for them together. If you look at the very beginning, when we look at the healing of the beggar, of the beggar and verses 1 and 2, first, you see Peter and John, they are, this, they are going to the temple to pray. There were two key times of prayer, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., and Peter and John were still actively involved in prayer in their community. And we see in verse 2 that there was a lame man who was lame, literally the, the Greek says he was lame from the womb. He'd never been able to walk. And, and he's brought to the gate to beg. And in this passage, attention is really important. You see Peter looks straight at him, as did John. And they say, look at us. And he gives them their, his full attention. And when the man looks at them, he's expecting money. John and Peter get to give him of what they have. But what does this man really need? Did he need money? Eh, that might get him you know, till the next day. Did he need to be able to walk? Sure, but that would make, put him in the same situation as the rest of us. What this man really needed, he didn't even realize that he needed, was Jesus Christ. He needed, he, he had a problem he didn't even realize. It was this problem of sin. But what's amazing is, first we see Peter and John tell him to get up, and it says instantly he jumped to his feet. His, his ankles and his, 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 his feet were healed. And, and the verbs that are used, he went walking, jumping, and praising God. I hope the image that you have is just this man. I mean, he's clicking his heels as he's going. He's just thrilled. He's able to walk. Not only is he able to walk, he's able to walk into the temple. You see, according to the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, a lame man could not enter the temple. They couldn't go into the presence of God. So all of a sudden, not only was this man thrilled that he could walk, for the first, he's been sitting at the gate for his whole life. All of a sudden, he gets to go to church. And he's thrilled. He's never been able to do it. And what are the people? Verses 10 and 11, it shows that they, they have wonder and amazement. And it's repeated in verse 10 and then in verse 11. They're speechless. They don't know what to do. And this miracle echoes almost exactly 
the miracle in Luke chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Sorry, Luke chapter 5, 16 to 20, where Jesus is, st- is sitting in a house, or standing in a house, and he's preaching, and it's crowded so much that no one can come in. And there's these, do you, do you remember the story? There's these men carrying a paralyzed man, and they can't get in. So you go to the roof, and what do they do? They knock a hole in the roof, poor house owner, right? Hope you had insurance. Uh, and, and they drop the paralyzed man, and, and, and Jesus looked at, at him, and he talks about, according to the verse, he, he talks about forgiving the man's sin. And the Pharisees begin thinking, ooh, no one can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And it says Jesus knew what they were thinking. <gasps> and so he says, what? What's harder to say? Are your, that your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So that you may know that the Son of God, the Son of Man, can forgive sins. He tells the paralyzed man, get up, walk. He's able to walk out of there. But what's the true lesson? Is it that Jesus can make a lame man walk, a paralyzed man walk? No. What's the true lesson? He can forgive sins. That was the whole point. And here we see the exact same thing. We see this cripple. He's able to walk. And what we're going to see in in the sermon that follows, Peter and John are going to show, look, yes, this man can walk. Yes, you should be amazed. But more than that, you should be worried because you're guilty. You're carrying a load of sin. And this same Jesus who healed this man can heal you too. And so what we see in verses 11 to 16 is the guilt of sin. In verse, there in verse 11, they show, look, the miracle wasn't because we're so great. They put the focus back on Jesus Christ, and they call him the righteous one. And we're going to see that throughout this whole passage. They, they point back to the importance of the Old Testament. They talk about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And to the people listening, they would have thought of all those Old Testament stories about how God had been faithful to his people to this particular family, the people of God. He also talks about how God set apart His servant. And if you read the book of Isaiah, the beginning of the book of Isaiah, the first about 50 chapters, is just describing uh, how Israel is about to send into exile. But then after that, it starts talking about this suffering servant. God is going to send a servant to suffer for His people. And we talked about that in the sermon last week, and we're going to talk about it again when we get to chapter 7. But this suffering servant was going to be someone who was going to save the people from their sins. How? By suffering. And so he describes, he describes him as the righteous one, who's perfect, who's blameless. And yes, that's talking about Jesus Christ, but as we, it was actually two weeks ago when we read Psalm 110 and Psalm 16. The righteous, God, Christ is called righteous, but guess who else is called righteous? Those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not because of anything they've done, but as the Catechism says, because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see my sin, He doesn't see my selfishness, He doesn't see my filthiness. He sees Christ's righteousness. So God calls you righteous, perfect, blameless. What it talks about here as well, that they killed the author or the prince of life. Think about this. To have agreed to such an act leaves one in a very bad position before God. Because essentially, number one, these Jews had handed Jesus over to be killed. Number two, they disowned him before Pilate. Number three, they'd asked for a murder instead of the author of life. Think of the contrast there. And number four, they caused the death of the author of life because their actions led to his death. So guilt, they were guilty, and that characterized the positions of the Jews in Jerusalem. As Peter is talking to these people, even if they didn't directly participate in it, he's showing, you are guilty. Not only so, but in verse 17, he says, brothers, he, he characterized, he says, I'm guilty too. Part, it's partly my fault that Jesus was killed on the cross. But then in verse 16, he draws the attention back to the healing. Because this same Christ who died also can heal. 
it seems to be a paradox. And if you look at verse 16, the way it describes is it says, it is Jesus' name and that faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing. And in the Old Testament, that word complete healing literally referred to an animal who was able to be sacrificed. He was completely whole. What does the Bible call us? Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. This man was made whole, not just because he could walk. Something had happened in his heart. Peter in this sermon is showing the guilt that all of these people carry. They have the blood of Jesus on their hands, even if it was out of ignorance. If you look at verse 17, it even shows some of you didn't know what you were doing, but you're still guilty. There's a staccato of verbs here. It says, you handed him over. You disowned him. It says that twice in verse 13 and 14. And you killed him. People, No one likes to have that finger pointed at them. I didn't do it. But he shows that it was them. But Christ died for us. Here's the thing. We carry that same guilt. I carry that same guilt. Individually, but also communally. We were unfaithful. We are dishonest. We have not forgiven our brother and sister. We partake in a society that kills babies for inconvenience and that rejects the sojourner out of fear. And for these sins, Christ had to die. We are guilty. I am guilty. You've sinned against the God of the universe who made that universe that's 91 billion light years wide. That's all, that's all we can observe. It might be bigger. We have no idea. The same God that created the 7 billion. We, we've sinned against Him. We deserve nothing. But Peter doesn't remain in the muck of sin. He doesn't remain in, in the filthiness of our mistakes. Rather, he points to the restoration of Christ. In verse 17 to 26, that's exact, exactly what it does. He says brothers, and he shows that Peter is involved in this. Even if it was out of even if it was out of ignorance, they're not free of guilt. But if you look at the very next verse, in verse 18, he also shows, though you are guilty, God knew exactly what he was doing. Nothing took him by surprise. There's this, God was in control. There's this responsibility, our responsibility, and God's sovereignty side by side. And God calls them to repent and to turn to God. Now, throughout the Bible, there's so many different words that are used for salvation. Uh, one of my favorites is adoption. We've been adopted in the family of God. Think of that imagery, even today. It's beautiful. We've been adopted in the family of God. When we see it in our, in our community, in our culture, we think, oh man, that's so amazing. That's what God did for us. Another, another word that's used is justification. It's sort of that forensic idea of, of standing before a judge, and we don't deserve to, have, to be part of restoration. To me, that's the familial sense of even when something's broken, mending it back together. Participation has this idea of intimacy. There's so many different words that the Bible uses for salvation. Here in verse 19, the word that it uses is repentance, and that's the starting point. And repentance, all that means, and I've said this before, is you're going in one direction and you realize, I cannot keep doing this. So when you repent, literally all you're doing is you're turning around. You're, you're turning around. And, and the next verb that it uses, it says to repent and turn to God. So literally that means you've been walking away from God. And then it says the result of turning is that your sins will be wiped away. When they used to write, today if you write on a piece of paper or you print, literally the ink sinks into the paper. So you can't erase it, right? The way they used to do papyri, what you would do is you would write with a pen. But if you wanted to wash it off, all you needed was water. You threw it because the ink would actually just dry on there. And, and so the practice was if you wanted to erase it, you would just put water on it and it would completely be wiped clean. There was no trace of it at all. And that's the, the word that he uses here. You will be wiped clean. It's as if nothing was ever there. 
And then it uses two interesting phrases in the verse, verses 19 to 21. It says, once that's happened, first it says that there will be a time of refreshing. It refers to the cooling. For example, if you get hurt, what's the, if you burn yourself, what's the first thing you do? You either stick it under water, you go, <laughs> try to cool it off. That's exactly what it's talking about. The pain of sin, there's a time of refreshing, a time of cooling when it will be restored. The other, in verses 20 to 21, the actual verb, in, in, in your Bibles it actually separates it but in the, to make sense of it. But in the Greek, it's a season of restoration of all things. Christ's return shows him coming twice. Once when he came before and died on the cross. But he will come Again, for us. And we eagerly expect that. And according to this, it was appointed before the creation of the world that Jesus would come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about how God has put everything under his feet and he will subject everything under him so that God may be all in all, the restoration of all things. Literally, God will take this messed up universe, God will take these messed up people and restore them, bring them back to himself. And so there's three blessings that he offers here. First, the forgiveness of sin. Second, the promise of, of refreshment. And third, the opportunity to participate in the return of the Messiah. You see, when Jesus Christ comes back, there's going to be some people that are not thrilled about it. When Jesus comes back, it talks about how from the east to the west, everyone will know it. Some people are going to be like, whoops, ran out of time. Those of us who know Jesus, we've been praying for this day. Please, Lord Jesus, come soon. Come soon. When you think about Jesus' return, what does it do to you? Does it bring you fear? Do you think, there's all this stuff. I should have committed my life to Christ and I never did. Or does it bring you great hope? I get to be with him forever. That's the question here. And Peter points back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, throughout the, the whole book of Deuteronomy is one big sermon. Uh, I'm already over my time. Aren't you glad it wasn't? <laughs> I didn't preach Deuteronomy. Just kidding. Um, but... In Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses is about to retire. He's about to die. He's brought the people out of Egypt. and He's not allowed to go into the promised land, so he's giving him this one last sermon. And there at the very end, in chapter 18, he talks about how a prophet will come, a prophet like me, who will bring the people out of slavery. And he uses the book of Leviticus to warn them about that they need to listen when this other prophet comes. And Peter points to that passage and he says, you know who that prophet was the whole time? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Not only is he like Moses, he is better than Moses. He didn't just bring people out of a physical slavery. He will free you from the slavery of sin. He starts with the Torah, but then he shows how throughout the book of Samuel and on, Jesus is the fulfillment. Every story you read, we read about Genesis chapter 22, every story you read, whenever you feel despair and you think, how could God's people do this? The whole point is to look to Christ. Ah, One day, the Savior, the Messiah will come. And Peter references Genesis 12, Genesis 22, which we just read in Genesis 26, where God fulfills the promise that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the families. The word here, and, and it, the word here it uses is they will be a blessing to the families of the earth. Your family, my family, is blessed because of Abraham. And because God kept his promise, God kept his covenant. According to verse 26, Jesus is fulfilling all of the covenants. You see, in this sermon, according to verse 13, God raised Jesus up, verse 22, to turn us, verse 19, each from our wickedness. So I'd encourage you, first of all, consider your sins seriously. You see, I, you, we are beggars. We cannot enter God's presence to worship, and we are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. 
But number two, repent. Turn from your sin. Ask, ask Him to change your life. And turn to God. That's what faith is. It's turning to God. Just feeling guilty about our sin isn't enough. We are called to turn to God. Ask Him for forgiveness. If it's your first time, do it. And then every day after that, you need to turn to Him, depend on Him. We never get to the point where we say, okay, Jesus, I got this. You're good. We've, we will, you will never get to that point. The life of a Christian is one of complete dependence, is one of continually asking for forgiveness. And you know what the beauty of Scripture is? It promises that He will forgive us and He will transform us so that we look more and more like Jesus Christ. There's these two words, justification and sanctification. Justification is that being saved. And what does it say? Justification, according to the, our Westminster Confession, is an act of God's free grace where He pardons our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ, given to us and received by faith alone. But that's not the end of the story. You see, the rest of our lives is meant to be a sacrifice to Him. And so what is sanctification, or the process of being made holy? And this is what it says. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. You look more and more like Him, and you're enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That is the life that we are called to live. We go from being a beggar and from being crippled to not only being made whole, but being used by God. So when people look at us, they don't just see us. They see Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for this image of of healing that we saw today. God, I pray that you would please transform us. That you would make us new into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.